welcome to Researcher Revealed, the podcast where we go behind just the name that's listed on the paper or conference proceedings to get to know a little bit more about the researcher behind the, the, the research that you're reading about. This is our 10th episode, I can't believe it already, into the double digits now. And on this week's episode, we have a respiratory physiotherapist who will be joining us to share all about her research journey. I hope you enjoy. Um, on today's episode, we have the lovely Ruth Barker, who's a respiratory physiotherapist joining us. Um, Ruth, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, yes, yeah, so my name's uh, Ruth Barker. As um, said, I'm a respiratory physio by profession. Um, coming to this with a bit of a research ahead on, um, having done a clinical academic research fellowship in the past and with a bit of a real world evaluation head on, now sitting in a health innovation network and doing a role related to kind of implementation science, real world um, implementation of innovation and adoption um, and very much with that clinical hat still on at the same time. Oh that sounds interesting I cannot wait to get into that real world and implementation bits and pieces. Um, so for everybody who's out there uh, you guys are probably all well used to this but Ruth I'm not sure whether or not you're prepared or not but before we get into the the guts of our podcast just to get to know you a little bit better and to kind of break the ice per se. We have a rapid 11 here on Researcher Revealed. So what that means is I'm going to ask you 11 questions, quick and easy. Just tell me your answer um, and we'll go from there. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Are you a Windows or Mac? Windows. Windows. Are you a tea or a coffee? Tea. Oh, yes. Another one for the tea. Yeah. Got to be preferably Yorkshire tea as well, not just tea. Oh, so like, tea. so you're definitely like only like a black tea versus like herbal infusions or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, just a black and tea, only but a Yorkshire? York, but preferably Yorkshire tea, yeah. <laughs> no, mm -hmm. Yorkshire gold or New Yorkshire normal? Yorkshire normal, I don't know, uh, is it Yorkshire gold? I don't know, but Yorkshire normal is definitely, definitely the one. Perfect. Excellent. Um, when you're writing, do you prefer music or some sort of sound or silence? Dead silence. Silence. Oh, you're a rare bird. Not many people have said that. Interesting. And where do you tend to work? Home or in an office somewhere? Hybrid. Bit of both. Okay. Nice. Um, at what time of day are you most productive? It doesn't have to be down to the minute, just generically, morning, evening. Like early morning, like five till nine. And then after that, it's all downhill. <laughs> You're one of those like crazy early birds. I've been like congratulating myself because for about like the last six months now, I've managed to transition to being up and out um, by 6 a.m. and get a workout in before I hit the desk and I'm like oh go me and now here you are blowing up my 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 achievement out the window. Yeah, but I'm in bed by like 9 p.m. so yeah <laughs> it swings and roundabout doesn't it? <laughs> it is. It's like I don't know if you've um, a follower heard about him but there's this through my husband there's this guy in America called Jacko or Yako Wilnick anyway He's like ex-military, blah, 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 American military. And Jacko, that's his name. 
and he's like up and working up at like working out at like four o'clock in the morning but he's very quiet about what time he goes to bed <laughs> it's probably about eight or nine p.m Probably, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. 5 a.m., something to achieve, something yeah. to go for. Um, right, this is my favourite one because of the reactions that I tend to get. What is your favourite referencing software or management system? I use EndNote. Okay. But I don't know if it's my favourite. It's just the one I've always used and have have not managed to like brace the transfer over to another system, basically. So if it's not your favourite, you're just kind of stuck with it because there's yeah. no such thing as a, well. I kind of agree with that, but anyway. Yeah. Um, what about favourite data visualisation tool? So when it comes to like making figures, flowcharts, graphs, things like that. Ah, oh, so would have said previously Canva but I've started using Visio recently and actually quite like that that's like the Microsoft version oh and um, is it different than PowerPoint yeah 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 different to PowerPoint it's got lots of like good functionality um yeah so that's why I've started using recently Visio I might have to look into that because I I never bothered with Canva because I would get frustrated with it because um having only a free membership to it because I'm too cheap, don't have enough money to buy the paid one. It was just so restrictive. I was always like running into like pay barriers. So mm -hmm. Visio might have to look into that. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Top tip. Right. Uh, favorite desk snack. Oh, I love food. Uh, just any snack, any snack I'll take. Uh, but actually, if I'm going to take most, uh, my favourite snack is, you know, you get those little packets of like scotch pancakes that you're meant to toast. I just eat a pack of six just because they're just really nice <laughs> sitting at a desk untoasted. They're my favourite probably desk snack. You would get along so well in Norway because they eat pancakes like it's going out of style. Yeah. When I was there at Christmas, I went to a Christmas market and they actually, which if you like a pancake, you have to try this because it'll be life changing for you. So they take crispy bacon and like chop it up in small bits and then they put that in a pancake. Oh, like an omelette with something in, but it's a pancake with something in, like, but not blueberries, like nice yeah like savory yeah, so imagine that with like maple syrup so then you yeah. get the sweet and salty and yeah. the cake all at the same time yeah it's life-changing <laughs> yeah i might have to i might genuinely have to try that <laughs> not sure yeah. if i'm gonna if i'm influencing you for good or evil at this point but you know yeah no definitely good definitely good oh right excellent um when it comes to like planning and organizing so whether that's like your calendar or like a project do you tend to use like pen and paper or are you digital only hybrid i okay. have online calendar online tasks online notes but also like a paper diary just because i just have this thing that if all goes down i know sort of what i'm meant to be doing that is a good show now i'm starting to have a bit of anxiety yeah. about the fact mine's all electronic yeah. when it comes to what i'm supposed to be doing and when if like i lost outlook i would be just wandering around going where am i yeah that's that's what sort of stresses me a little so yeah now i have like the high level stuff in a paper diary and everything else is in outlook fair enough yeah. fair enough um second to last question um what book are you currently reading Oh, 
it's a bit of a geeky book um okay it's on my desk I haven't finished yet but it was actually recommended by somebody um Ooh. and it's actually been really great um okay. uh, oh you can't see that I'll read it it's called shifting the dials a new approach for success in work and life it's a bit <gasps> geeky but actually it's really it's really making making me really think so it's good it's really good very interesting. Well, I'll probably ask you to do um, in an email after this is over, if you can send me the title and author yeah. of that, because I started trying to like keep track of like different books and stuff that people are doing. I put them in the description of the mm -hmm. episode if you're listening out there. So if you can you want you think that that book sounded interesting, you can check it out. But I also have visions of someday actually creating a website for this podcast and having like an electronic bookshelf of what all the researchers who I have on the podcast are reading come in. Yeah, then you can pull it out. But anyway, mm -hmm. that's future Rosalind's problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question is who is a researcher that you admire? Am I allowed a couple? Sure. Yeah. Various few rules here. Yeah. Um. So I'm not going to name any names, but basically, there's like three people who I like really mm. like working with. Okay. Um. Different reasons. One of them's a methodologist and gets Ooh. me like really thinking about like um. Just just thinking about like not just inherently doing the same thing for the sake of doing it. And actually mm -hmm. really thinking about application and thinking about the why of the way and the way you do things. The other is somebody who just makes me think about the rationale for everything. So like not necessarily mm -hmm. methods, but like the why behind doing a project, like what's okay. the point and then making it so that you really hone in and focus. So that's the other person. Okay. And then the third person. I really like for totally different reasons because they're super, super pragmatic. Ooh. So they're really good at problem solving. So they sort of go, just take a step back. Like you've gone too insular, too focused. Actually, this is how you then, this, you know, you maybe need to take a step back. You can't see the wood for the, you know, you can't see the wood for the mm -hmm. trees. Like, so like they're my kind of three people that I just have really good conversations with. I was going to say, that sounds like quite the power trio, the practical yeah the how and the why I mean yeah. what else do yeah. you need yeah, if you have exactly. that around you you are minted yeah oh I, I love that yeah That's really so, cool. yeah not one but like everybody brings something to the table so like my go-to people I'll be like can I just drop you an email <laughs> I know uh so good it's it's such an important part of research and I think it's it's definitely a skill that I don't know about you and your training. We'll get into that in a minute. But my training, they would talk about it in these really vague terms. But when it came down to like the how to, it was kind of like, good luck to you, figure it out. And, and, and for me, one of those things that was really crucial, and I think for me now in this postdoc period that I'm relying on so much is those networks that you build mm -hmm. yeah, and those that it's more than just like, ooh, I know somebody, but it's that relationship that you yeah. continue to like feed and mm -hmm. maintain. And I think for me, it goes back to one of the reasons why I started this podcast is I learned how to do that, not because of research, 
or my research training, I listened to entrepreneurial podcasts. Yeah. And I picked up and because I I picked up skills from there. So I'm hoping that this will help to start to fill that gap within the world of research um, by sharing everybody's journey and like top tips and hints of how to mm-hmm. to to do research successfully, especially as a clinician. So that brings us back now nicely to in your introduction of yourself, you kept talking about this clinical head. So I know you, so I know that you're a respiratory physiotherapist. Um, so thinking back, like way back in the, in the beginning of all of this journey for you to become a researcher, what was it as a clinician that made you go, hmm, that research thing looks cool. I want to give it a stab. Um, I think my first manager would probably call me like just curious, like always asking a question, always wondering why, always wanting to do a little bit more just because like I couldn't explain like why that was I I was interested in that I just was interested and I can get excited about anything so when I was doing like my rotations I'd be like oh I could do an in-service presentation on this because it's interesting um I just had like a had that kind of questioning head so for me research felt like a fairly natural step because that's what you do inherently with research is sort of ask questions um, so it kind of gave me a space to legitimately do that and not just be like the annoying person that's always asking questions. It was kind of welcomed in that world, whereas like I think sometimes in the clinical world, it's much harder because there's like much more fixed rules or there's like established pathways, whereas in research, people are always asking questions. So it gave me like a space to be like not annoyingly curious, but like interested, curious. And that was like welcomed. Um but equally kind of never I never wanted those questions to just be like abstract questions they should always be back to kind of the purpose or the like the reason I was there in the first place um so yeah that's that was kind of how I kind of got a bit interested I guess because it gave me a space to ask questions legitimately and not feel like I was just being annoying um (laughs) I love that that's such a beautiful way of putting it like that it's research is a because I think a lot of within the nursing world which is very different than the physiotherapy world within the nursing world I find there's a lot more um not necessarily excess acceptance of evidence base, but there's definitely much less curiosity that is invoked within nursing. And instead, I find like nurses who are in research, they are the ones who are like, but why? But why? And they really have to encourage and foster that curiosity. So it's really interesting to hear that that was just something that naturally occurred in you and that the best way for you to stop annoying people was to go into the yeah. world of research. I'm sure you weren't as annoying as what you think you were. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that is what pushed you into research so then what did that push into research look like for you like how did that that um come to be yes I I feel like I was really I was really lucky that same manager that I talked about before I was always curious always asking questions she 
just really encouraged that of me. She never tried to sort of say like, no, don't let your head go there. She was just really happy for me to be curious. Um, So that was really good. And so, yeah, so like the step for me was kind of starting to ask questions and do the stuff that we we can do within the roles that we have as clinicians. So like the service evaluation work, the quality improvements, projects, like to me, that's like, it's a bit like a gateway drug into research. Like I was given basically permission to do those projects and really, yeah, like I was given permission to do that. Yeah. And then I kind of just, I think because I was interested and I wanted to learn, I went away and learned about different methods and how to analyze data and how to do how to do different things um that I needed to be able to do the project do the projects I wanted to do so I sort of problem solved along the way and then I ended up because I was really interested I saw I don't even know where I saw it um that the NIHR masses um what predated the PCAFs um and I sort of said, oh, what, do you know what, actually, I'd really be interested in applying for one of these. At the time, I had genuinely no idea how competitive they were to, to get. I just was like, they sound really interesting. Just thought it was like applying for anything else. Um, and was successful and then did an MRES. Um, and then came back into clinical practice after my MRES for that year. And the trust I was at was just re- was still really open to the idea of me wanting to do research and be embed research so they kind of gave me time within that role and we didn't know what to call it so we just called it like a therapies research facilitator type role wow. and so it was like a, it was time to support other people to think about projects support people and signpost people into projects or just like quality improvement projects or service evaluation work so for me it was just because the people around me allowed me to think that way and let like kind of they didn't have to actively nurture me they just gave me the space to to, I guess grow which was like the biggest thing I think um and then it sort of just went from there really that's such an interesting idea of actually just um because I think I think sometimes in other conversations that I've had um, not necessarily on this podcast, but in in my roles that I've had, is that a lot of managers actually are really self-conscious because they're like, oh, Fred, Fred's an imaginary person, just for everybody out there listening. I'm not talking about a real Fred. This Fred has come to me and they said, I really want to be involved in research. And and managers have said, you know, that they feel really bad because they don't have that expertise. They don't have the experience. They don't know how to signpost people. And for you and your experience, it was actually just your manager being, all right, crazy, off you go. <laughs> and yeah. allowing you to do that yeah. then allowed you to, to flourish, to do this MRES. And then they actually gave you even more space when you finished that and that then allowed you to help and um, build capacity for others around audit and quality and improvement work. Did you at that point ever think about or get approached by like uh, the trust at the time where you were working, um, their research delivery team and be like, hey, do you want to do like this big clinical study or was that not really a part of it? So, not, so the trust I was at the time, and I can't speak for where the R&D department is now, so the research delivery team is now, 
but there was kind of no connection between therapies and R&D and research delivery at the time. It was all research nurses that were employed, like we're talking 2014, so like 10 years ago. So it's all research nursing delivered research. We didn't have any, I guess, therapies research. Mm. Um, all of the like the PIs and CIs were all medics. Um, so actually, from a research delivery point of view, there wasn't much contact. But again, that same manager, she, you know, so I said, oh, I'm really interested in to work, see how R&D works. So she'd be like, oh, contact the R&D manager and see if you can go to their like annual, their monthly meetings and yeah. just go and hear nice. about the projects. So like there wasn't really any connection with therapy. So research delivery in terms of, I guess, that as a trajectory into research probably wasn't available at the district general hospital that I was at but equally I think if I'd probably said that was the avenue I wanted to go down instead of my own hypothesis driven research yeah. would there have been a blanket no I don't think there would have been I think it mm -hmm. just probably wasn't where my head went as a clinician um, but I think that's probably changed over time I think there's much more allied health professionals now in research delivery than there probably was 10 years ago I think slowly slowly but I think it's similar to how you described your journey into doing your own hypothesis driven research which I love that term and I'm going to steal it um it is it is very individually driven so there is still like the occasional job application like advert that you see come out within research delivery it'll be a research practitioner instead of like a research nurse but they still I'd say a lot of places are still more like limiting it to nurses mm -hmm. only which again you know there's so many other research studies out there that yeah. would really benefit from allied health professionals so um, but I think you're right. I think it's starting to change. And I think some mm. of the things that nationally the NIH are doing both mm. to encourage um, more big research projects that are being driven by non-medics. Mm. I think yeah. in the years to come, it'll it'll get yeah. exponential. Fingers I mean, crossed. I say that, but actually my next role after working at that DGH was in I guess technic technically research delivery. I was mm. employed as a research physio, um, but working alongside very much embedded in a clinical team. So it was, it okay. was kind of, it was, I guess I wouldn't say that sat in R&D, that sat very specifically next to a research, a research team that was supporting a clinical team with a very specific interest. Um, and again, they were all grants that were applied for. Okay. Um, so it was they weren't kind of coming down as like commercial studies that we were yeah. a site for. They were yeah. kind of we were going, oh, there's a call out for that. Should we yeah. submit something or that's, you know, should we apply to this charity for funding for this project? So we were involved from the grant writing stage yeah. to the ethics, to the setup, to the delivery, to the yeah. kind of closed and analysis and then dissemination. So it was slightly different probably to what conventional research delivery roles look like sort of depends on where you depends. are and what yeah. your team looks like but a lot a lot quite similar mm. okay so finish your masters you're got this innovative role that they're allowing you mm -hmm. <laughs> to spread the um gateway drug mm -hmm. gateway drug yeah of clinical <laughs> audit and uh, quality improvement work um 
So, and then you were kind of dabbling in the semi-research delivery, which still actually sounds more like you were more part of a research group that was developing their own program of research rather mm -hmm. than commercially driven or industry yeah. driven. Um, so then what happened after that? So I, yeah, I went into a research physio role at a tertiary hospital, so moved trusts because partly what drove that thought process for me was I'd been and done an MRES and got all this information, was using it to kind of signpost people, but I also quite quickly realised I didn't have anybody within that trust who had done what I was looking to try and do, and I didn't have anybody to kind of role model or kind of really see where I could go with it. So I ended up moving to a trust where people were doing that, where there was I just could see that, see where I could go with it and just knew there was the right support in place to be able to to take the next steps. Um, and so then, yeah, I was in a research physio role working alongside a clinical service doing kind of clinical delivery and then the kind of the very clinical assessments for um, the studies that we were delivering. Okay. Um, so like or like we we basically tagged on to a clinical assessment and so yeah. we did yeah, the full yeah. clinical assessment to be able to do the extra couple of research assessments yeah. um and then um applied for an nihr clinical doctoral research fellowship mm. um in that role and then so worked as kind of i guess a research fellow within that clinical research team for um, obviously the duration, that three-year duration of my um, fellowship and then yeah then into where I kind of am now but yeah that was kind of the next step was kind of into somewhere where I could really support me grow kind of in yeah. the back of my head thinking eventually I can then use that for the greater good because I can take it back to somewhere else and use it yeah yeah and apply it whereas like I kind of felt like I kind of learned a little bit but there was so much like the tip of the iceberg but there was all of this stuff that I just couldn't learn just through like osmosis of listening mm. listening to things online or reading yeah. stuff like it was kind yeah. of the applied doing so yeah yeah that was where I went after that okay so your actual PhD mm -hmm. um what was it on so it was on, so the title was Improving Access and Uptake to Pulmonary Rehab Following Acute Exacerbations of COPD. So okay. a mixed methods program of research involving um, basically a co-design project, systematic review, um, feasibility trial and um, testing of uh, another in intervention which was intended to improve the uptake of rehab and then kind of I guess like pulling that together into the kind of I guess the conclusion of of, of kind of where that had all kind of led in terms of moving us forward um, mm -hmm. to be a better understand what opportunities are out there to to get patients into pulmonary rehab. Okay so again pulling that apart a little bit so was pulmonary rehabilitation sort of like in your training as a physiotherapist, was was that really like your passion and your drive? Or was that, again, something that you were like, oh, I wonder or combination? Um, a bit of a bit of both. So really interested in respiratory and my MRES project was in oxygen 
post-acute exacerbation. So my, I guess my heart lies in post-exacerbation management okay. and respiratory physio um, and the components, I guess, of care with kind of how people are managed. Like in COPD, there's kind of like people are well and then they become unwell and then kind of they never quite get back to being as well yeah. as they were before they yeah. run well. So that every time they have a, a trough, their peak is never quite as high. Mm. And so I guess for me, it's just about limiting how much that exacerbation affects the person so they can live as healthily and as well as they can with as much quality as they can around having exacerbations, which is the nature of, I guess, the condition. Um, so, yeah, it was about COPD and about management of exacerbations and pulmonary rehab is kind of a cornerstone in the management of acute exacerbations of COPD. So it kind of makes sense when there's problems in terms of getting people to even access a program and then once they kind of get into a rehab program getting them to kind of take it up and then continue to completion of the program and then maintain so yeah just for me it just made kind of I guess fairly inherent sense to try and yeah. unpick that a little bit um so yeah a bit of both like respiratory yeah COPD management post exacerbation and then rehab being the focus of that program of work Okay, so was that um, that 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 improving access to the pulmonary rehab for this patient population of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD patients? Was that something that you were seeing happen a lot in your own clinical practice, or were you more acute and you were like, "I'm sending these people off and they're going to get better," and then you'd see them again? you know, that revolving door. So which side of the street were you on, more the revolving door side or trying to get people, you know, you had the yeah. rehabilitation course set up and you were sitting there going, how come only one person has joined? Because mm -hmm. I know there was 10 referred. So just out of curiosity. So I had a really interesting role. So I sat on both sides. So oh, wow. I, I were the rehab, so the, the research team, was embedded within the pulmonary rehab service mm. but because I came from an acute background I had a honorary contract with the local acute trust so I supported their integrated respiratory service doing admission avoidance and early supported discharge um, for their COPD patients so we did kind of we would assess people in A&E coming in with an exacerbation could we take them home and manage them at home could we, or if they were in hospital, could we reduce the length of time they were in hospital and support some of their medical management at home if mm. they were stable enough to get them home? And then okay. as part of that process, there's something called the COPD discharge bundle. And there's key elements that you should do as best practice when someone exacerbates with COPD, basically to give them the best opportunity to kind of get well after an exacerbation. One of them is pulmonary rehab. So we would be talking to people about rehab when they were discharged whilst also being very connected with the rehab service so I knew for example when I was referring people were they coming through um, mm. and being seen within the rehab team were they actually saying yes to me in hospital but actually not when someone from the rehab team was ringing up um, saying do you want to come they were like oh no I don't want to go so I yeah. could see I could see both that both sides um, and so doing the clinical assessments for the rehab team um, alongside doing then, the, as I say, the additional rehab studies 
had mm. additional um, assessments tagged on. So we were doing the clinical assessments. I had people who would be, who'd say, Ruth, I see, because I also worked in the, within the integrated respiratory team, I supported one of the um, outpatient respiratory clinics. Okay. So people would come through like referrals for like kind of a, a differential diagnosis in the respiratory mm-hmm. clinic. So they'd see me getting new diagnoses. Then if they came into hospital, having just been diagnosed with COPD, then they'd see me in hospital and then they'd see me at rehab. So they'd be like, we see you everywhere. Um, so I had a really interesting, I had really interesting roles. So I had an opportunity to see things from both sides yeah. um, and try things out from both sides, I guess, because some yeah. of the, because like the intervention itself that we co-designed in my PhD mod, uh, program of work was looking at the delivery of rehab and how could we think about the delivery of rehab to make it more attractive for people once they'd been referred to kind of get through the program and stay on right. the program whereas right. another in, whereas another intervention that we tested was actually at the point of being discharged and being offered rehab could we get more people to be referred so they were targeting different parts of the pathway one of them was about in, in increasing referral rates one yeah. of them was about getting people to take it up and stay in the program. So yeah. the interventions were testing different parts of the clinical pathway. I guess. Oh, that's fascinating. But what a monster of a PhD. Mm. Good grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was quite, um, it's quite bulky. <laughs> <laughs> um, that sounds fascinating. So uh, without getting too into your PhD, um, is your PhD, did you do that with a publication model or with the more traditional monograph model? Just more traditional monograph. More yeah. traditional. And yeah. is that available online for if somebody was really keen and wanted to read your very bulky PhD, they could go yeah. and download it? Yeah. Yeah. It's on the Imperial Library Spire, Spiral, Spire. One of the two. What 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 I might do because it does sound like a really like to me like my ears went up immediately when you said the title because um, for me I'm like it's a different population but I'm really interested in heart failure patients and similar to COPD patients they have all of these acute episodes and their line just goes from good to worse and mm-hmm. after and after a decompensation and likely hospital admission they never they don't even match the same level like there there's always a big step down um and there's a lot of discussion in the heart failure world about like self-care and how to get people to engage in it more and things like that and unfortunately for a lot of heart failure patients and services they don't even have access to a heart failure specific rehabilitation program um, they just have to do it independently it. because they got taught anyway we won't yeah. go down that because yeah. then I'll get I'll get on my yeah. horse and we'll be here all day um, but I really found it interesting because similarly I think you know the the pathway that patients have to take in order to access a given service in your case rehabilitation and heart failure case whether that's to see a specialist or their GP or pharmacist or whatever. I think that's so often uh, area within our healthcare services really overlooked because most most services go by the, well, if they need it, they'd come ask mm-hmm. for it. 
Um, and so I find it really fascinating that that that's what you dialed in on is like, how can we actually improve the access rather than just being like, let's make it all singing, all dancing. Because in a parallel vein, one of the things post heart attack that is reputed as being really hard is to get people to uptake is cardiac rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the uptake rates in cardiac rehab are definitely better than pulmonary rehab. Oh, wow. Because that, that says a lot because mm. they are not good. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah. Cardiac are a bunch of superstars and like our, our, our rates are rubbish. <laughs> yeah. We always compare our numbers to cardiac rehab. Or I do anyway. Interesting. Okay, so you did your PhD monograph and you did that as an NIHR clinical academic fellowship. So were you maintaining that clinical role throughout or because some people who I know who did the NIHR PhD fellowships, they end up sort of more being supernumeraries, So they're not as involved clinically. Um, But what was it like for you? Yeah, same. I'd say not as involved clinically, but definitely totally connected with the clinical service at, okay. at all times. Yeah. I think partly just because of the way the the research team was set up anyway, is mm-hmm. it was it was a embedded part of the clinical service. Um and the fact that I was recruiting and doing a study at the at the acute hospital um I was then delivering care when I was going to speak to people about research studies I was doing their discharge bundles and I was doing assessments so I was doing it was all embedded within their kind of I guess the clinical pathway is you Mm. know when I'm there you know I'll be there and I'll be assessing patients and doing all of the usual clinical things not just going to talk to them about the study but you know auscultating talking to them about inhalers um, uh, speaking okay. to them about rehab you know asking them about you know have they you know what do they understand about self-management and talking them through self-management so doing their clinical care whilst having a conversation about the research study so definitely very connected throughout the whole yeah. uh, the whole time which was really nice because I think it kept me very grounded about why I was doing it like mm. when the times when I was like this is a lot like quite overwhelmed with the amount of like just like how intense the process is just being like oh this is why and it kept me very like sensible of like the why is really obvious just forget about the other stuff get the stuff ticked off the list one at a time and the to-do list will get shorter so um in theory in theory you hope um so yeah that was yeah that was yeah really I felt really closely connected to kind of clinical I guess the whole time but it was not ad hoc but it was like um there was peaks and troughs I'd do more clinical and then I'd do less but but it was always really well closely connected that sounds that sounds like really sort of like the ideal sort of combination then of you know being able to to have that contact to to remind you of the why and to motivate you to keep going especially on those hard days um but also giving you the license to, if you needed to stay away in order to get through your very long to-do list, you could do that as well. So yeah. it sounds like a really nice supportive balance. Mm-hmm. So finished your PhD in? 21. 
mid twenty one. Yeah. During COVID. During COVID. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky you. Yeah. So did you have to do your Viva remotely or were you yeah, doing it in remotely. person? No, remotely. <gasps> yeah. How did you find that? That was just weird. Like, um, I made myself get properly dressed up, stand yep. up. I yep. put, like, the laptop on, like, the kitchen, like, worktop so I yep. could, like, properly, like, feel like I was, like presenting I was like I need to get myself like in the headspace yeah. of like so it was a bit weird and yeah it was it was it was a bit weird but it was I think I was just pleased that I'd like got to that point um yeah. like yeah. I I hadn't taken an interruption of study I'd been able to like get right. written up and stuff so like I just I think I felt a little bit privileged that I'd even got there do you know like yeah so yeah I think it was weird, but it was, you know, the my assessors were were really like were just it was good. Like I actually quite enjoyed the viva in the end. Yeah, yeah. I I think I think those of us who completed either during or just the COVID, um, like pressures. I don't want to say mm-hmm. panic, but you know, yeah, like when like that that's sort of down so later 2021 into mm. 2022 where it wasn't pretty much that everybody thought everybody was going to die from it anymore mm-hmm. I think having gone through that during your PhD period definitely added an additional level of challenge and um like in some ways like real building up your your perseverance yeah um yeah. because it's like this huge unforeseen thing but like for me um because I was sort of in the middle of data collection it gave me so many great lessons as well mm-hmm. because it was like when do you pause a study how do you restart it what do you need to consider like it gave it layered in so much more than yeah. like a traditional PhD would have ever mm-hmm. trained you so yeah. similar Same. to you yeah um although I you know, would never wish a pandemic on anybody. No. I, I can't imagine my PhD without it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mine, I developed, I co-designed a model of care pre-pandemic to then the pandemic happen. And a lot of the co-designed conversations led to was initially planning a face-to-face intervention on top of, instead of, people wanting anything virtual or light touch because because people didn't think that was the best way to get them through a program and then the pandemic happened which meant that just wasn't viable to do and actually then I was like okay so I've co-designed something I've had I've purposefully had these conversations Mm. actually there's things happening outside of this control like what do you do about all of this now so yeah yeah so that was really interesting um problem solving those so yeah it was it was interesting um yeah but no really as you say it's so much learning yeah yeah unpicking now I know the terms things like unpicking complexity and yeah you know testing implementation and all of the things that I had to go away and think about that I was thinking about but didn't know the processes to do that at the time but was doing it off like off the on the hoof because I kind of had to yeah 
Oh, wow. The things we have to be thankful for. Okay, so finished it clinical academic um, 2021. I mean, I can imagine you just stepped into a beautiful clinical academic position, right? Well, (laughs) it was it was so we made some life choices. Okay. And so we decided we were relocating, me and my other half, back down to where he grew up. Okay. So I was already kind of knew at that point we would be moving and I'd be thinking about what the next steps were anyway. Um, and had some really good conversations with some respiratory researchers down where we've ended up moving to. Um, and there was potential opportunities to pursue there and again clinical services had good conversations with clinical services and then a role was advertised with what was an academic health science network now is a health innovation network um, for it and there's 15 in the UK and so I'm I'm working at the in Wessex region Mm -hmm. at health innovation Wessex um, in an evaluation role so That was kind of taking, I guess, thinking about what happens in the real world when we implement something and actually, you know, how does, you know, how are services using things? Is it delivering what they anticipate it will when they implement something? Um, And so actually, for me, that was really interesting because one of the things I hadn't covered in my PhD was a you know, developing a model of care and then testing the feasibility of that model of care. But actually, there's nuances to that. You know, when you take something and think about spread and adoption, mm. you, something's not going to be necessarily implemented and spread in exactly the same way that it was tested in the research setting. So actually, for me, this was a really, really interesting role to to go and learn something that I hadn't done before Um, so it was I was just curious curious is probably so I was just really curious about how how you do this in a systematic robust I guess really transparent way and how you unpick those those nuances about when people implement things slightly differently say for example in the same patient group but their pathways look different and but it's the same intervention but it's at a different point in the pathway or yeah, you know, it's just done slightly differently. So yeah, you know, just going away and learning the theory behind implementation and de-implementation and the theory yeah. behind like complexity and um, just yeah, just really interesting. So for me, this actually was maybe a bit of a tangent, but actually just really interesting and actually really suited where my head was kind of going in terms of how do you use something beyond testing it in the research world? So but I, I would argue actually yeah. COVID and the impact that that had on your specific PhD project, you know, it led you directly to that role that you're just describing because, you know, um, I don't know, like way, way back in like my early days, I had this exercise psychologist who was like he kind of planted a seed way back in the beginning of my education about like if you were to invent a pill that cured fill in the blank illness so for you COPD for me heart failure if taking that pill was an impossibility what good does it do 
either because of its size, because of its um, side effects, because it's too expensive, like whatever that reason is. And he started at a very young age, started to make me think about it's not just enough to create this new model of care, this new intervention, but it's about how it becomes applicable. And in my own like professional career, I always found it like so interesting that like, for example, and I, I don't know if you've read it or not. Have you read the book Invisible Women? Nope. Okay. Put it on my list. Put it on your list. It's a bit of a hard read for a couple of reasons. One, there's a lot of stats in it. And two, it's slightly depressing to read, especially as a female. <laughs> um, anyways, in that, it highlights that same issue of what you're talking about is like this thing was designed with this patient or this population or this pathway in mind. But like in heart failure, in most cardiology, or let's be honest, pretty much every research ever, if you have a sample that has more than 30% women, you're like a, a genius. And let's not even go into like um, a, the representation for people who are non-Caucasian like you know it's just not there in research and it's to me it's so interesting to see how uh great example uh we were as a research nurse I was involved in this big research study and it was so hard to recruit people to because the inclusion and exclusion criteria were so narrow um and it ended up being like a really impactful drug they ended the study early and like it went through like all the approval process really quickly and clinically you just start seeing like doctors giving it out like candy and I'm going well we, where's the evidence behind yeah. that and so you said this in the introduction and I think it's the perfect time to start to unpick this is that combination of implementation science together with a real world evaluation. So for you, what does real world evaluation mean? So for me, evaluation is the real in the in the real world is something that's happening fair is something that ha is happening naturally. So in by that I mean there's a model of care or an innovation that could be a piece of tech it could be mm -hmm. um, a digital tool and actually what we're doing is we're supporting in our in our area we're supporting people to say okay so this is what we currently do this is how we want to use it this is where we think this is why we want to use it we think it's going to impact patients or staff or it's going to do this or it's going to do that and help them work out based on the, either the current data that's available or maybe new data collection, how they're going to evidence that that has happened, has been, you know, is the case. Um, okay. And it usually, for me, this is something that's got an evidence base already. So it's, you know, it's got a research base. We can say it's, you know, efficacious and it's effective and it should do this and it should do that. But actually, when you take it out of your really nice research world that's controlled and you've got your inclusion and exclusion criteria and it's been done in a set way actually does it you know is it having the impact in that very okay. natural setting um and it's working with the system to for partly for them to we we don't necessarily do the implementation we can guide them on on how they might think about processes but okay. we will we'll support them to do evaluation of that okay and then help them kind of interpret that data 
make okay. decisions and recommend it. We can then make recommendations off the data okay. um, and then do kind of lessons learned pieces around kind of, you know, actually was it the implementation strategy where it fell down actually not necessarily the innovation itself or actually was the impl did the implementation go really well but actually the innovation didn't deliver as intended so it's it's kind of unpicking the complexity that comes with the NHS um, because we don't do clinical care in the nice neat research setting that we deliver trials in and nope. kind of unpicking that so for me that's what real world evaluation is okay. is kind of understanding something that's evidence and efficacious but actually yeah. can we do it the same way in clinical practice and does it work in clinical yeah. settings the way we'd kind of want it to in that applied way yeah i guess that for me is and you know and for me they're not all mixed methods you know there okay. but i think for me you know you can you learn a lot by doing something mixed methods because you learn not just the what is happening with the quantitative yeah. data, but you learn kind of the why it's happening by unpicking it with the qualitative. So for me, it's really useful getting that multiple data perspective. And quite often, I think like a multiple stakeholder perspective is really helpful. So quite often, yeah. implementation can fall down even if staff love something because patients don't like it or something might yeah. fall down because actually there's a there's a problem with actually staff's experiences of using something uh, even if it's really beneficial to patients so I think again just unpicking that's really really helpful. Oh it sounds fascinating so a little bit of a return to your roots around your um, gateway drug. Gateway drug yeah yeah of that, it's all that about the gateway drug. audit but yeah. but on on a whole different scale now because you've had that experience through your own PhD of driving your own hypotheses you now sort of getting um, a hold of that data and looking at it from that multi almost it sounds to me more like you're looking at it from a system point of view so on an earlier episode um, I was speaking with Reese Williams who's a pharmacist um, and he's much earlier in his research career and he's been involved in a big research team and he really helps around um, data collection and analysis of that real world but in his head when he's talking about real world evaluation similar to you where it's 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 we we know this treatment works but actually we now want to look at its impact when we put it in a real population but the work they're doing um uh, his research group is doing is it's much more population based rather than than system based so for you are you looking at a combination of that population plus uh, system because you've got that wider mixed methods and understanding of the complexity where for them they're just like you know what in in study in the drug study run by this industry partner they said only these people were cool enough in clinic we're actually giving it to all these people and actually people that you know fall outside of this may have had more benefit or less benefit whatever so describing that real world experience of that treatment for that population i guess i would say depending on what the need of the person coming to, to seek okay. an independent evaluation we would kind of have a scoping meeting having scoping conversations we would logic model to work out a theory of change for what they want to learn from something 
and kind of what their intended use for the data is and, and the understanding that they need to glean in order to. So we would tailor the evaluation question based on those scoping meetings and that kind of understanding of what the theory of change means to them uh, or how we've developed. And so it could be at a patient level. It could be, you know, is this a improving patient outcomes in X, Y and Z specific measures? It could be, you know, if it's a workforce related thing, is it improving staff experience? And it could be individual. It could be a team level, individual level. It could be a system okay. level. Um, or it could be both staff and patient perspectives or it, you know, so I think, and if, so I think the level depends on the need of the person or the, you know, the, the requirements. Request. Yeah. The yeah. request that comes in. So okay. it's quite varied in terms of kind of what the evaluation looks like. Um, there's no like one, one size principle. fits all. It's kind of a very bespoke offer, I guess. I was going to say, what an incredible, uh, experience and position for you to land as a postdoc, though, yeah. Because it's it's really it, it makes me think back to what you said in the Rapid Eleven about the um, your power trio that you have around you and how you're you're using that power trio. It sounds to me like this role that you've gotten and some people might argue it's a tangent because it's neither academic clinical academic or clinical clinical no it's sort of in this other sort yeah. of outside category that probably people don't even know exists yeah um but as a as a, a job it's giving you a real opportunity to really challenge like your thinking around complexity and models and like having to learn lots of different new methods techniques theories like Wow, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah, so like for me, like I didn't, I fell out of my PhD into something that I just didn't really know that I was looking for, but actually has turned out to be this really perfect thing um, just to grow what I know and expand where like my horizons in terms of you do research, you deliver your research, you write up the paper. To yeah. that, you know it's then like that next step on about spread and adoption and implementation so for yeah. me it's really been insightful um because now if I was to think about putting a grant application in I mm. wouldn't be thinking about just the research question I'd be thinking about the implementation question and be thinking about implementation outcomes but doing those prospectively from the beginning so that you're not scrabbling around at the end for implementation data to understand why things worked yeah. and why things didn't. I'd be going, yeah. I can capture this at the start and have a much better picture yeah. of how things have gone and do do this in a really formative way as opposed to just this summative evaluation. So do temperature checks along the way and do some interim implementation kind of knowledge gathering. So, yeah, for me, it's been a really useful tangent and a really interesting one and um yeah a very much an accident but very very say, very interesting now, now because because the theme of podcast and wanting to share your journey and the lessons you've learned with all of the the listeners out there around the world to this so for me doing my clinical academic PhD it was always 
get a clinical academic post, get a clinical academic post, and then you could always fall back on an academic or a clinical post if that magical mm-hmm. one didn't come through. So you just said there now that it was an accident. So how did you go, like, how did this accident happen? Like, because I think the truth is around finishing your PhD is there's this huge other category that nobody talks about. And I think your role falls into that other category. So for you, what was the accident and how did you, like, share share how you find these amazing accidents. I, I literally was on NHS jobs looking at clinical jobs in the area when we were moving to and I just put the area plus a certain radius and just searched yeah. all jobs and I was like oh interesting okay I didn't put like physio or anything I literally just went into NHS jobs and I was like this job needs to be kind of within this radius yeah um see what pops up and that's literally and I rang um the now director of the team that I'm in and was like I've seen this job advertised or like I think I emailed maybe or phoned I can't remember anyway had a conversation with with her and was like this sounds really interesting um yeah so just it was it was not something I'd kind of foreseen doing at all um Okay. And just taking so me down a very different route. Then. Yeah, yeah. And taking me down a very different route. And will I I'm a massive advocate for clinical academic careers. If I if I if that opportunity had been there, yeah. Kind of on my lap, very easy to navigate and whilst relocating, I would have jumped at that opportunity. Yeah. Absolutely, of course I would. But yeah. I also was had a very realistic head on that trying to navigate two part time roles in an area I hadn't got a reputation or people didn't know me so how could I say you know take a chance on me yeah um so I was really reliant on my old manager putting me in contact with his contacts where we were moving to and all of that sort of stuff so it was quite hard yeah Um, so I think you know that's why we that's why we lose so for me the clinical academic career was absolutely where I was going and it didn't, and obviously hasn't, but I, do I regret it not happening? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's just totally, it's just different. And it's, yeah. it, I don't think there's a right and there's a wrong there. No, I, 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 and so I think, agree yeah, with you. And I think it's just like your gut probably tells you whether something feels right or wrong. Um, yeah. I, like, I'm so grateful for you sharing all of that because I think, like in loads of people that I talk to who are who are like a little step behind me or just starting their journey and like they're asking questions, you know, because the NIH are really pushing hard to try and promote and build research capacity in non-medic clinicians right now. And everybody comes to me and talks to me because they know I did this clinical academic PhD and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, do you think it's worth it? And all this other stuff. And I think exactly what you just said is I encourage people to have a realist head because it isn't worked out yet and there there are very there are a few exemplars out there who are starting to create these hybrid roles that are cross-cutting across institutions so you only have one contract but Mm -hmm. you've got the two different roles but those are pretty much as popular as hen's teeth Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the reality of it is is that most people who um, 
pursue or continue in that clinical academic pathway. It's because they're bringing their milk to their own milkshake party Mm -hmm. um, through having won an NIHR fellowship or grants or whatever, and they're buying out their time in their NHS contract or, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. rather than it being... Um, I don't know, people talk about it being like this clinical academic career pathway. And personally, I'm like, at the minute, it's more like a little bit of an overgrown jungle trail. (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard. It is really hard to navigate and it's really hard to work out. And I think even just within that, it's hard working out how you would say generically, how much time do you have as an academic? How much time do you have as a clinician? And, And actually is do you mean an academic or do you mean a researcher and and actually there's there's so many complexities within that that I think everybody's an individual yeah within that journey as well and actually what works for one person might just be the other somebody else's idea of absolute nightmare yeah so I think it's really it's it's a it's a challenging space and it's a challenging space to navigate you have to and you have to be, I think you have to be quite in tune with what you want and what you mm. what you think you're, like what you think you want to get out of things and start to look ahead about, well, where am I going? Where do I want to yeah. go? Is that yeah. where I want to go? Is that yeah. going to help me get there? Like, what's the compromise here to actually in the longer term get to where I want to yeah. be? And I think like, if it was handed on a plate, everybody would, you know, it would, it yeah. would but it's, you know, I think it's, it's just it's worth, not like that, yeah. but I don't I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Mm. I think a lot of people think that that's a bad thing. But I think like, you know, you wouldn't have landed in the job that you were in and enjoying it and being challenged as much as what you're being challenged mm. as a physiotherapist researcher. Mm. You know, and, and, you know, it's not that you're ignoring that other side of you. It's you're bringing that with you, even mm. if you're not seeing a patient every Tuesday now. Yeah. And I think, you know, it it's all part of your greater research training to shape mm. you into, you know, what what is the future for Dr. Ruth Barker? You know, I I don't know. Like, I I am. Um, I think I've realized you. I've got a skill set that I want to grow and things that I want to learn mm-hmm. as opposed to necessarily it, unlike, I've got interests rather than it being about this is where I'm going to go. So I've realized I'm really interested in workforce, workforce development, capacity and capability, that area. Um, okay. And actually it's not very sexy. And I, but it's but it's kind of what makes me kind of excited and kind of interested. So I think you know for me it's it's working out what I'm interested in and what mm. makes me excited and what what do I wanna what do I wanna do? Like I do love respiratory physio and there's, I've got so many respiratory physio. I've got so many rehab questions and you know that world is really important to me hence why I've kept all the links and I still do lots of respiratory I've got still got lots of respiratory connections I'm you know part of the like American Thoracic Society pulmonary rehab assembly as a chair of one of their committees so I still do lots of still connected to that world but it's for me like it's working it's not about like am I going to be a professor or am I going to be yeah. a consultant physio? Like, I don't know where I'm going to end up. Yeah. And I'm kind of reconciled that that's okay. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Like I've got a thing, something in my head that I think, oh, I don't know enough about that. Go and learn about that. Or actually, if yeah. that's what really drives you, go and focus on that and actually yeah. learn more about that and get involved in that world and, and do more on that. So I'm, I'm not sure I know where I'm going, but I know that there's things that I don't feel like I know enough about mm. that will guide my next steps. And then I'll see where I guess I am then, um, which is a bit, um, it's not very, it's not very helpful answer if people are wanting answers. Um, no, no, no. I would actually argue the but, opposite. I think that's probably like the most like genuine answer to that question I could have ever hoped for, because <clears throat> I think to me, it fits with everything else that you've said about who you are and how you are going about this development as a researcher. And for you, you know, <clears throat> it's all about the why. It is all about the why. And for you now, you're recognizing what part of what part of that question is important to you like which why you want to answer and you're dialing down and you're you're exploding out on all the different methods and possible ways that you can try and answer a given question and you know you're open you're open to opportunity and eyes are on the horizon and there's there's no doubt that things are going to change and alter and opportunities are going to come to you and you'll just be able to better direct yourself because instead of it just being like, ooh, there's a assistant professor job there, I'll go and do that and then have to learn a whole new set of newness, you're holding on to those things that are core values to you. So that that work packet that workforce picture and the pulmonary rehab picture. And I would say actually those things are so connected because especially your experience with, you know, you did all of that amazing engagement work and they're like, yes, face to face is the most important. And then like the world erupted and face to face was no longer a possibility. So combining those two things of being like, OK, in an ideal world, yes, if we could, yes. But the reality is. We only have one physiotherapist for the entire, this is a specialist in pulmonary rehab for the entire area of Wessex, and he or she cannot be everywhere at once. So mm-hmm. what are creative solutions around that that match your workforce, but that will also answer that need, even if it's a slight tweak to what the patients ideally wanted, but it will still provide that service for them. So I think, I think it's beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's just, yeah. To answer the career question, I think it's just, I think it's, yeah, keeping open and just figuring it out as you kind of, as you go, whilst also kind of having a regular check-in and being like, does this make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a powerful trio. Yeah. 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 I've got this vision of like three people around a pot and you're <laughs> yeah. sitting in the pot being stirred. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> my brain just a mash <laughs> yeah I'm sure it's not like that I don't know no, why I just have no, this cartoon it's far, it's far, it's yeah, no, it's far more strategic than that I think uh, I'm, um, I'm yeah. fairly certain it is yeah. from, from I, think, who... I think it's a bit more strategic I'm pretty sure it is there's one of those weird images that pops mm. into your head um, I'm just conscious of the time and it has flown by Ruth um I always give this opportunity um 
Is there, other than what you've just said, which I think actually is perfect, anything else that you'd like to share or, you know, inspire other physiotherapists like you out there to, you know, try out your gateway drug of choice? Yeah. Just be curious. Just try be curious. Just don't be afraid to ask a question that you're not sure whether or not you can answer. Mm. And just test things see where mm. see see where the questions take you it's um it's an interesting world once you get into it <laughs> definitely i think that's beautiful advice i'm going to wrap things up here um for everybody if this might be your first time listening to it uh the podcast in the episode description on either your podcasting platform or choice or on youtube we'll put in where you can find ruth on her socials um and as well we'll list a couple of her publications so that you can kind of get a taste for some of the research that she's doing um as well as some other details in there so definitely check that out um, remember to subscribe and like and if you have any questions at all whether it's for me or for Ruth um, just leave them in the comments on YouTube because that's sort of like the central place and easiest for us to find them and answer them and other than that thank you so much for listening and we will see you in another three weeks for the next episode of Researcher Revealed thanks so much bye don't go away Next, we have the top three takeaways from this week's podcast by Dr. Rosalind Austin. I know I say this after every episode, but I think it just goes to speak with how much I really am enjoying doing this podcast for all of you out there. Um, Ruth was, oh, I'm so grateful that she agreed to take part and be a guest on the podcast. I knew her through um, on Facebook. There's a group um, which we're going to have a podcast about later on um, called the Hyper um, Healthcare Professionals Research Group. And um, I knew her through there and we'd done some other things together through that. So um, I was keen to have her on to share her experience. Um, and she was great. Um, I learned much more about her and her journey than I did, even though we've known each other for several years now. Um, and she had some really good insight um, that I'm going to now list as my top three takeaways for this week's episode. So number one is curiosity. And I've said that a couple of times is just ask why. But and, and she was saying the same that, you know, her curiosity kept leading her to ask um, why, why, why about various different clinical things. And I thought it was really interesting because for her, she talked about how that curiosity, how research became the playground for that curiosity. Um, and she talked about how in the clinical world, and, and, and this is true, um, that often asking why we do something can not be always that welcome. And so for her, that transition into um, research was smoother because she was now being encouraged to ask why and not just ask that question why, but try and find out the answer to the question. So that was a really interesting take that it was um, research became that safe space for her to expand her curiosity. So, yeah, it was a really, really new way of thinking about that for me. Second, and we kept using the term through the podcast and it made me giggle so much, 
was um, her gateway drug. <laughs> yeah, gateway drug. Anyway, not an actual drug, but she was using the term as being like the, you know, those initial activities that she was doing as a clinician, being audit and quality improvement work. For her, that became her gateway um, into research and it taught her a lot of those initial research skills around structuring something, data analysis, data collection and, and coming through and coming up with a conclusion. Um, and, and, and again, she kept saying that it was giving her space for that curiosity to, to, to grow and expand and those skills around curiosity to grow and expand. Um, and that was interesting. And, and I asked her specifically, because we've had lots of other guests on the podcast talk about how for them, their gateway drug was research delivery. And for her, it was very different. It was actually through those clinical evaluations, that real world evaluation that actually facilitated that journey into research. So I found that really, really interesting. And then the third is... Um, bit tricky because we've both done clinical academics and like I said we're in this group where we all it's a national group here in the UK and we all talk about and actually I think it's international now as well but we all talk about the challenges that we're having as healthcare professionals in embedding research into our careers and in the UK we use this term of clinical academic and it was sort of coined back in 2009 of being this umbrella concept of an individual who would both work clinically and academically um, but what that academic piece was is up for discussion and some people choose to view that as being a researcher other people think about that as being becoming a lecturer but those two different components um, and so going through our clinical academic PhDs, I can remember at the time, both her and I, as well as others, you know, you're pursuing this, this role, this dual role that would allow you to do research, but stay clinical, which would mean um, two different contracts and two different institutions. And those positions, you know, they're primarily, aside from a couple of exceptions, and we had one of the exceptions on an earlier podcast, Dr. Lindsay Welch, I um, I'll link it in the description so you can re-listen to that because she actually has a true clinical academic position um, where she uh, has both clinical and academic, but instead of being two contracts, they've actually managed to umbrella it, umbrella it under a single one. And when we, when we as, as PhDs, um, when we were looking and thinking about finishing our PhDs and what our next steps were, we were all pursuing this oh, clinical academic post. And I think her description of, one, the job that she's in now and the role that she has and what it's allowing and facilitating her to grow in her skill set is just, I think top takeaway is keep your eyes on the horizon is although you might think that this one thing is for you that there might be other things that pop up and opportunities that pop up that might actually be better suited for who you are where you are um, and and may grow your career in a different way than you'd originally thought but that may not necessarily be a bad thing. There's lots of opportunities in order for you to use your research skills out there. Um, and so it's just about, yeah, keeping your eye on the horizon 
for those opportunities and carrying through to those opportunities, those core values in you. So for for Ruth, it was, you know, her emerging core value, not just about her pulmonary rehabilitation, but around those workforce issues and how those those two things intersect when it comes towards implementing a new program of care for a given patient population. So I think that's it. Top three takeaways. So curiosity, which isn't a new one. It's a repeating theme. Um, the gateway drug uh, being introduced to research through uh, audits and through QI work clinically. And then to keep your eyes on the horizon for any opportunities out there that will allow you to pursue that thing that you're very, very passionate about. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening and sticking all the way to the end um, to hear my top three takeaways. I'm really grateful for everybody out there who subscribed, who's liked, who's commenting on the posts. And um, for those of you who've left a review on your podcasting platform of choice, I'm really, really grateful for those stars. Thank you very, very much. Next episode will be coming in three weeks. So if you haven't already, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Um, Give me a thumbs up if you enjoyed the episode. And I will see you again in three weeks. Thanks so much for listening. And keep asking why.